Well, dear friends, I would like to turn your prayerful attention to that 49th chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. The prophecy of Isaiah is a tremendous book in the Old Testament, sometimes referred to as the Gospel of Isaiah because it is full of the message of the Savior that he would come into the world. There are at least four servant songs, what we call servant songs, speaking of the great servant of Jehovah, who is the Lord, who was to come and who did come into this world. In the fullness of time, he came into the world, but he is spoken of so much in the prophet Isaiah. And no less here in chapter 49, we read here of the Savior. In previous chapters, the Lord summons not only Israel and Judah to judgment, for they have sinned, they have gone after idolatrous things, and God will chasten them. But really, this could be said of the whole world. And every isle, every man, is born an idolater. Every man is born alienated, separated from God. We are born into this world estranged from God, from the womb. The Bible says we come forth from the womb speaking lies. We speak lies about God. We speak lies about ourselves. We will not hear the word of God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we thank God, although they could not see God anymore, they heard And it is by the word heard, by the word preached, that God is pleased to save precious souls. Think of it. Adam and Eve, they walked with God. They talked with God. They heard his footsteps, we're told, in the garden. But that day that they sinned, they were banished from his presence. But the Lord still spoke. And my friends, God has given his word, has he not? We are called to hear the word of God. May the Lord speak. Thank God he has not left this world in its sin. Thank God that he he promised and he did fulfill that promise to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. And now millennia have passed till we come here to the time of somewhere around 700 BC, 700 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. And the prophet Isaiah is given a word to the people to speak the lost man and woman of this world. And sinners are called isles. Verse 1, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from afar. You see, men are like islands, I suppose. They separated, and they're at such a great distance from Almighty God. And this is also language used to convey the, the Gentiles particularly. The Jews were a united people. And God brought them out. But in a sense, that they, many of the Jews began to live like the Gentiles, a lost people, without hope. Many of them abandoned the God that had brought them out of Egypt. Now the Lord summons them, and summons all nations. And he says in verse 1, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from afar. In other words, God like a street hawker of wares in the market, is calling, heralding the word, listen up, hear, 
When the Lord says a word like this, we are to listen up. We are to hear what the Lord says. Here is a word. And the one speaking here, who is this? It is the Lord Jesus speaking in his word. You notice with me, the Lord hath called me from the womb. Of course, Christ, before he came into this world, God is spirit. There was a time when the Lord Jesus never had a body. We know God is one in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that Romans chapter 8 verse 9, we are told that Christ, he that hath not the Spirit of Christ is none of his. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And here the Spirit of Christ is speaking in Isaiah 49. And he who is the Word, we are told, are we not? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh. And here Christ, in Isaiah 49, 1, says this, The Lord hath called me from the womb. This, as we'll see, cannot be Isaiah. But this is the servant of Jehovah, the servant of the Lord. From the bowels of my mother, he hath made mention of my name. We know this is true, even concerning the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember how the angel appeared to Mary and said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus. And he was spoken of long even before he would enter into the womb of Mary. We can read, can't we, in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, that the virgin shall be with child, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Have a look there. Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. This is the very one who is the branch of Jesse, who would come from the line of David, the long-promised Messiah. And he is being spoken of here in Isaiah 49, verse 1 and 2. And then you notice something concerning the Savior. He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. Of course, we know that this is the Lord Jesus. Do we not read in the book of the Revelation that his tongue was as a sharp two-edged sword that went forth? The Lord's words are quick and powerful, dividing asunder the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Lord gave him the mouth. He who was the word. And yet there was a time he never had a mouth. Yet he took to himself human nature. God was manifest in the flesh. This is speaking of the humiliation of the Lord coming into the world. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hath hid me. God from All eternity was hiding the way in which he was going to deal with man's sin. The Lord had hidden Christ. You notice, he made me 
a polished shaft in his quiver as he hit me. You can imagine the finest shaft that could pierce a heart so finely polished that it could travel through the air through at tremendous speeds. And that's how the Lord Jesus Christ is described as that invincible dart, as that invincible arrow that can pierce and penetrate the hardest of hearts. And the Lord has hidden him in his quiver where you keep the arrows. And just at the right time, the Lord will take the Savior out and do his work. That's the thought of these verses here. Yet the Lord has made mention of his name. We find the mention of the Savior throughout the Old Testament. He is called the angel of the Lord. We see him through his various appearances through those theophanies he appears to Abraham he appears to Moses Moses in the, in the cleft of the rock he appears time and time again but yet in time he would come and the Lord would give him a mouth to speak as he comes into this world The Lord is preparing him. This concerns the Lord Jesus. And here is the one who, let me say, when we think of this one who the Lord prepares, I want you to think about the Lord Jesus. He lived a life of relative obscurity for 30 years. Hardly anyone knew who he was. He was just known as the carpenter's son, the son of Joseph. Jesus of Nazareth, yet being the very creator of the world, the sustainer of the world, the keeper of all things, all things were made by him and for him. Without him, nothing, says John, was made. Hidden in the quiver of God. And then at the right time, the Father would bring him forth to do his work. Read in Matthew thirteen fifty four. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch as they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is this not his mother called Mary and his brethren James, Joseph, and Simon and Judas? They were utterly amazed because this very one spoke as it were God. And he was God. And he is God. God the Son. He came with power and wisdom. And it says here in verse 2, And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. And then we read in the verse 3, And said to me, Unto me thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now this is not, of course, natural Israel. Natural Israel never glorified God. But Christ, let me say, is the true Israel. Jacob was originally called Israel, wasn't he? First of all. What does Israel mean? A prince with God. 
That's what it means. But of course, here is the real prince with God, the prince of peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true servant of the Lord. We're told in Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient even unto death, and he took to himself, we're told, the form of a servant. Imagine that. But here's the question. Why Israel? Why is he styled with his name Israel? Well, Israel were meant to be a light, were they not to the Gentiles? God had brought those people out of Egypt, out of dark pagan land. And sadly, many of them brought idolatries with them. And many of them did not glorify God. They were meant to be, as they went into Canaan, they were meant to be a light to the world. But what did they do? They imbibed the world rather than were a light to the world. And they were a shame to God. And they did not bring honor. Despite all that God had done for them, they had utterly failed. It could be also said of Adam. Was Adam not made to glorify God? And were not you and I made to glorify God? In one sense, we could all say we were meant to be like Israel. And Israel were meant to glorify God, a peculiar people chosen to be an honorable vessel, to be a light to this world and to glorify God. God had shown particular favor. Think of the kindness that God has shown to the nation Israel. But yet how they live for themselves. And this is natural man. Israel are no different to natural man, my friends. Let us not get down upon Israel. That's how we all are like. And if it were not for the Lord's mercy, Paul says in Romans 9, we'd be as Sodom and Gomorrah. You better believe it. There's enough wickedness in your heart and my heart to be as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah and to perish. But that's how we all are. But you see, the Lord Jesus is the true Israel. But ultimately, he is the servant of Israel. He serves his people. He serves in the sense that he comes to do what they never did. To live the life that they never lived and, and then to die in their place. That's the greatest servant thing that he could ever do, isn't it? To do all their living for them and to do all their dying for them. And that's what the Lord did. Now Israel were meant to bear fruit. And they didn't. And that could be said of all of Adam's posterity. Now, Israel were meant to be those fruit-bearing. Remember, the Lord said in John 15, he said, I am the vine. I am the true vine, he said. What did he mean? Well, Israel were meant to be like a vine. If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5, I want you to see this. This is precious. In Herod's day, if you were to look at the edifice, if you were to look at the great temple building, Around Herod's temple, not only was there a golden dome upon the temple, but around the temple was a great wall where there was a vine. And that was a picture of what Israel were meant to be, a fruit-bearing people. 
And we see it here in Isaiah 5, 1. Now I will sing to my well-beloved song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore? When I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Now go to, I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will take away the heritage thereof, that it shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned and nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. (coughs) I will also command the clouds that they rain, not rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, notice, is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. You see, a barren people. And that's just not Israel, friends, but that's all of us. God has given us a body, he's given us a life, but what have we done with it? We've laid waste. We've not brought forth fruit to God. But God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world. The true Israel. The one who who brings honor to God. The one who will be the servant of men. But who is God? Becomes man. In order to become the servant, he had to become a man. We read here, Behold my servant, my servant. If you turn to Isaiah 42, verse 1, we read, Behold my servant. And here, this is the servant of Jehovah, Israel, Jesus Christ, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I've put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment, literally, deliverance to the Gentiles. And that could only be said of the Lord Jesus, that he would bring forth deliverance. That word judgment, we know from the book of Judges, there were judges, weren't there? But effectively, they were deliverers. They were ones who brought the people out of trouble. And that's what the word means. Christ brings sinners out of trouble. Even the Gentiles, who are afar off, who are as isles, as it were, We're living separated, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. But Christ, he comes to be the servant of men. The one who created the heavens, the one who made all things. And then finally to be forsaken upon the cross. That's the servant of servants, isn't it? Greater love hath no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. And then we notice here in verse 4 of Isaiah 49, and this is he speaking in the days of his flesh, as it were. We think of the Savior. There he is on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is the cry of dereliction. 
And he says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught in vain. But that's not it, is it? It seemed for a moment that all the labors of the Savior were in vain. But that's not the end of what he says, is it? He says more. Yet surely my judgment or my deliverance is with the Lord. My dear friends, the Lord Jesus trusted in the Father in the work which he gave him to do. He was truly forsaken on the cross. He was truly abandoned. God spared not his son. And yet he says, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord. And the next moment, one minute he's crying that he was forsaken, and yet in the next moment he said, Father, into thine hands I commend my spirit. And then he cried, to tell us that it is finished. For those three lone hours, Christ was forsaken. But then the sun comes out. As it were, I like to think the Father has his smile upon his son once again. Yes, son, I receive thy spirit. Welcome. And he says in the next moment, my son, sit down at my right hand. He did the work which the Father sent him to do. You see what the Savior says here? Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. And these things are meant, before I come to my text tonight, to set our minds upon the finished work of the Savior. We know from the Psalm 22 that there were those that as the Savior was being put to death and the strong bulls of Bashan surrounded him and the dogs encompassed him and men spat at him and buffeted him and bruised him and they said, he trusted in God, let him deliver him. But God did deliver him. We are told, are we not, in our text, that his work is with his God. But for our attention this evening, I want to point your attention much later on in this chapter. Maybe there are those that are seeking the Lord. And uh, let me say, there is nobody by nature that truly seeks God. None. Because that's what the Bible says. And let me say this, there's a wonderful verse of encouragement here tonight for the sinner that's truly seeking the Lord. I bring your attention to the close of the verse 23. It's these words. We read how kings shall come. Verse 23, And kings shall be thy nursing fathers and thy queens, speaking of the church of Jesus Christ, and thy nursing mothers, they shall bow down to thee with thy 
face toward the earth. They will honor him. They will lick up the dust of thy feet. Thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. I want you to think, first of all, in the first instance, there was a sense in which the Lord Jesus waited upon the Father as he was suffering there upon the cross, was he not? As he was being the sin-bearer of his people. He was waiting upon the Father. And we can even read in that Psalm 23 that he knew that he would not be put to shame. We're told that the fathers waited upon the Lord and the Lord never failed the fathers. All that ever trusted in God and truly have trusted in God have never been ashamed. And truly we have to say that Christ, being very God, but God in the flesh, trusted in the Father. And what was he put to shame? Was he left in the grave? No. Did the Lord not say he will not leave his Holy One to see corruption? He would not, but he raised him up, didn't he? But here is a word tonight to those who wait for him. They shall not be ashamed that wait for me. That's my text for this evening. And I want to comfort hearts tonight. Let me say this. Natural man does not give Christ a second thought, let alone a second glimpse. The cross is foolishness to them that perish. But it is the power and the wisdom of God in which he saves souls by. Just as men... Many of them perhaps thought they were very foolish in looking to that brazen serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness. Remember how the people sinned? and Moses was told to put a brazen serpent upon a pole, and whoever looked to that serpent would live. But in the same way, natural man does not give Christ a second look. I mean truly seek. And when I speak here, and we're speaking about them that wait on the Lord, I want to think what it is tonight to wait on the Lord. And Perhaps you've been under the ministry here this last year, and you have been wondering, am I the Lord's? Let me say this, there's no true waiting without it being the Lord's work. That's, that's quite a statement I've made. There's no true waiting without it being waiting on the Lord and the Lord's work. The fact that you are waiting, God will not put you to shame. If you are truly waiting on the Lord, what does the Lord do in waiting for Him? I remember how it was when the Lord saved me. He had already changed my heart so that I began to wait on him, so that I began to pray. And the Lord was drawing me out of myself and getting me to be more honest with myself, more sincere with myself, 
and that I was coming before him and pouring it all out. And the more I felt him not answering me, what was he doing? He was drawing me to himself. But he had already begun the work in me. He had already quickened me. He had already brought me to life to see my sin and my unworthiness. And I was drawn to him. And I was not disappointed. I was not ashamed. It was the best thing I ever did. Or should I say God did in me. When I began, by the grace of God, to wait on the Lord. Maybe you've not felt an answer. But you're waiting. God says in his word that he is not sought in vain. Let me give you a word of comfort. He's not sought in vain. He says that. He says, O children of Israel, am I the Lord ever sought? Have I ever been sought in vain? Has anybody ever truly sought me? I'm talking about a true seeker. One whose heart is broken, come to the core. And you feel your lostness. God says, never have I been sought in vain. Rather have a proper salvation than one of these cheap, shallow, easy drive-in jobs, you know. People want everything quick and easy today, like you can drive through the McDonald's and get a quick meal. Salvation is not a quick meal, my friends. It's not a quick deal. It's the real deal. And you want God to really deal with your heart and your life. And there's so much to think about, isn't there? We ask the question, am I real? Am I genuine? Am I the things that I'm asking? Are they real? Are they genuine? Well, we must ask those questions. We must ask, what is the motive? You hate your sin. That's a good thing. Because that's where God begins. God hates sin. You don't want to go to hell. Of course, nobody does. But that's not enough, is it? You look to Christ. And what do you do when you see Christ? You see such a lovely one come into this world. You see the very creator coming into this world. And you say to yourself, there can be no other salvation, but this means it had to be that a perfect life was lived in exchange of my life. That a perfect one had to die for sinners. And I feel myself to be terrible. And I find my heart drawn out to him in love. Do you love him? It's one of the questions you ask as you wait on the Lord. God's people love him. They love Christ because they love what he did. They love what he did for them. And they see themselves to be so unworthy. And if they got hell, they would, wouldn't complain. 
Would you complain going to hell? One of the ways you know that you're saved is you wouldn't complain if God did send you to hell. Because you know that's what you deserve. You don't complain of justice, do you? And the Lord says here, they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. Now here, of course, this is speaking about the Savior who would come into the world. We thought with the dear friends, didn't we, this afternoon at the care home of dear Simeon. You just turn there with me to Luke chapter 2. Dear Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And, uh, well, he was not ashamed when he saw the Lord, and the Lord revealed himself to Simeon. And uh, we're told there of how the Lord came and was presented in the temple. And uh, there was Simeon. Notice verse 29 of Simeon there in the temple. Lord, he says, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He was beholding the Lord Jesus. He was holding him in his arms, to which thou was prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Now, did you notice, if you come back to here, Isaiah 49, you'll find those same words that Simeon spoke. Notice verse 6, here of Isaiah 49, speaking still of Christ. And he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Exact same words which Simeon spoke. Simeon realized here in the Lord Jesus is the very fulfillment of Isaiah 49, verse 6. The Lord Jesus, who is not only a light to the Gentiles, but who is also the light of the world, isn't he? And Simeon saw him. And Simeon did not wait in vain. And Simeon was not ashamed. This old man, he said, now I may go in peace. I've seen everything. He says, I've seen life, you know, but life is nothing. I leave this life behind. I leave everything in this world. I'm an old man, he's saying. But now I can leave in peace. I have seen my salvation. My salvation is in this person, the Lord Jesus. He literally, physically waited for him. But let me say this. Everyone that is ever saved truly waits in prayer on the Lord. And seeks God sincerely. Let me say, if there's a waiting there, be encouraged, my friend. And you keep waiting. You wait as long as it takes. Because the Lord will always reveal himself 
to those who wait because they are made to wait. Yeah. Nobody ever waits by nature. Everybody in the world by nature says, I've got no time for this business. I must be about living my life in this world. I eat, I drink, tomorrow I die. But the Christian says, no. I know I'm going to die. And I know I'm going to see the Lord. And I wait on the Lord. And I will wait. Because he says nobody is ever disappointed. Nobody is ever ashamed that waits on him. But let me say this. Those who don't wait on him will be thoroughly ashamed. They'll be ashamed of their sins. They'll be ashamed of their rashness. Now, this Lord Jesus, God says, they shall not be ashamed who wait for him. And so, first of all, of all, we're reminded, is God not worth waiting for? And God reveals himself only through one person, my friends. God only, if you study the Bible, you learn this one thing. God only deals with humanity through his son. Only through his son. Not the father. The father sends the son. The spirit reveals the son. And the spirit must reveal Christ. And he will reveal Christ. If he's revealed your sin, he'll reveal more. And you keep waiting. And it's true also in the Christian life. You, You know, the Christian life is not just this. Somehow we're saved and we stop waiting on the Lord. The Christian life is one of constantly waiting on the Lord. We're waiting on the Lord for wisdom. We're waiting on the Lord for discretion, for guidance, for everything in life. And let me address the Christians here tonight. If you wait on the Lord for wisdom, he'll always give it to you. The problem is, We're so often either like the horse, David says, or like the mule. The horse wants to race ahead. The mule wants to drag his heels. But the person that waits on the Lord, God is very gracious to. And they that wait on the Lord shall not be disappointed. Romans 9.33, we're told, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone. That's what Christ is to many. And a rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now, again, I must emphasize, in your waiting, God is doing a work in your heart. Do you hear what I'm saying? Salvation is not a quick, easy job. There are many things sometimes God has to deal with in our lives. Many things maybe we've not given a second thought. There are so many adjustments we need to make. There are so many things we haven't figured out. But it's in waiting on him that he teaches us. That he teaches us to stop being so impatient. That he teaches us to examine ourselves with a proper 
the judgment and assessment of ourselves, that he teaches us to examine this world for what it is, that we start to trust his word more implicitly. There's a verse in Isaiah 28:16, And it is to Israel, and many in Israel who were believing, it says, Isaiah 28:16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. If you believe on the Lord, you're not going to make haste. You're not going to be rash. You're going to wait for him. And I'll tell you what, those that wait on the Lord, first of all, for that assurance of sins forgiven, they will not be ashamed. You will come to deal with your sins properly. You will confess them thoroughly. I remember when I began to confess my sins, my friends. I had to begin confessing my confessions. You hear what I'm saying? I had to begin confessing my confessions. Because a lot of my confessions were poor. They were not thorough. A lot of my owning up to sin and problems in my life were not as genuine as they should have been. What was God doing to me? He was bringing me low. Bringing me low. Humbling me. We read of Paul, the day the Lord struck him down on that road to Emmaus, or sorry, Damascus, and he had all those papers in his hands. And then we read, it says, and behold, he prayeth. God had to blind that man. And God had to humble him and bring him low. And he began to pray. And can you imagine all the things that Paul had to confess? How he treated the church, how he treated others. How unkind he was, how proud he was, how haughty he was. He thought he was a Jew of Jews. He thought he was upright. Scripture says, when the law came, he died. He says, covetousness, when it came, he understood what a covetous man he was. He wanted to be esteemed high above everyone. But he had to be humbled. Now let me take it a step further. If you're a Christian, you've certainly had God's visitation upon your soul. And his love has been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You've been delivered from the curse through the Lord Jesus by his death for you. But do you know what? Your heart still needs to be changed. And you need to go on waiting for the Lord. You see, the Christian life is one of dependence, isn't it? Christ actually becomes our life. We begin to think differently. And, and let me say this, this is true for the person that is seeking the Lord. You have to begin think, thinking differently. Entirely, your whole life has changed. It, it's not a five-minute work, is it? Salvation is an entire change of life. You are a different person. When you need wisdom, he says, ask of me. And then maybe you'd think, well, that's not the way I would do it. 
And then you make mistakes and you think, well, I should have listened to the Lord in the first place. I should have obeyed him. Now look at me, I've made foolish decisions again. And you learn to wait more and more and more. And it's true, the whole of the Christian life is is a blessed life because we wait on one who will never make us ashamed, who will never let us down, who will never fail us. You seek counsel of the Lord, will he fail? He's called the mighty God, the counselor. He'll never fail. He'll give you wisdom for life. He'll give you wisdom in all times. Isaiah 40, verse 30, Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. There will be times in your life when you think, how can I go on? The Lord will renew the strength of the person. And you will, the Bible says you will run. And you will mount up as on eagle's wings. The Lord comes to live in people. Salvation is not just coming with a basis and set of ideals and ideologies, but it is a changed life, a changed mind, it's a changed heart. And it is one continually waiting on the Lord. That's where Adam went wrong, didn't he? He stopped obeying. Life is to live closely with God and to walk by his word. That's the whole of the Christian life, isn't it? It's not just saying, well, you believe one day and that's it. God leaves you on your bike and you're on your own. He is with you by his spirit. Blessed are they that wait on him. You wait for him to come into the world. And he did come into the world. You wait for him to die on the cross, and he did die on the cross. Peter had to learn to wait. Peter had to learn many things, didn't he? He had to learn to obey. He had to learn to trust. Not have so much self-confidence. My friend, that's the whole of the Christian life. And those who truly humbly come, he will not fail them. The greatest need, friend. You see, salvation is not simply saving us from wrath to come, but it's saving us to a new life. And you know that you are not going to face wrath because you have a new life, because you're trusting in Christ. It's not simply you look back five years ago, oh, I believed in Jesus then, put my hand up, I said a prayer, But there's no walk. But you're daily walking with him who never fails. There are many verses about waiting on the Lord. We don't have time to visit them. But friends, you know, to walk with the Lord is a wonderful thing. He came into the world. He promised he would. That seems to be The incarnation, let me say, is one of the greatest proofs of God, isn't it? How how can God 
become man. I was just talking with somebody about that this afternoon. How can God become? We can't explain it. Science can't explain it. But God promised to do it. God promised to do the seemingly impossible. How can one be raised from the dead? We see people going to the grave. How can they live? But God promised to do it. He did it. And he said, because I live, you live also. God does the impossible. He says, is there anything too hard for me? You may think, I've sinned beyond the pale. There's no hope for me. Look at my life. Well, my friends, what did he say? He didn't say, I've come to call good people. But he said, I've come to call sinners to repentance. Look at Zacchaeus. The whole city's looking at him and saying, look at, look at this swindler. They couldn't believe that Zacchaeus, that the Lord Jesus was going to his house that day. The Lord Jesus didn't look at the crowd and say, well, Zacchaeus, I'm afraid. It looks like people don't like you. So I don't think I'm coming to your house. But the Lord went with him, didn't he? And what did the Lord do? He forgave him. And the Lord changed that man's life. Did anybody in that town ever think that that little man Zacchaeus could be changed? Nobody. They thought this man has to be one of the hardest swindlers around. And you know what? He gave people, he knew the law. He gave back fourfold. Everything he had taken. Only God can do that. What was he doing? He was waiting on the Lord. Zacchaeus was in that little tree, wasn't he? That sycamine tree, that little man. Standing out from the crowd. And the Lord knew him by name. See, the Lord knew he was waiting for him. My friends, the Lord knows everyone who is truly waiting for him. They wait with a sincere heart. They wait with sincerity. They wait with brokenness of heart. All they that wait on the Lord shall never be ashamed. And I say, the fact that you wait, that is of God. And I mean really wait. Not wait five minutes, I've had enough of this, but you wait until he answers. You repent, you say, God, I'm a sinner. Work in my life. Reveal to me more. Reveal to me the Savior. Change me, Lord. Do a mighty work. My friend, if he did it in me, he can do it in the hardest sinner if he will. I've seen the Lord change many people. And I know this one thing, that they that wait on the Lord shall never be ashamed. As a Christian, you keep waiting on him. That's the problem with many of us. 
We rush on, we make decisions, we don't wait for the Lord to direct us. But you know what? He's so gracious. Even when we don't and we fall, it says in his word in Isaiah, Isaiah, we're told, therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. Therefore, will he be exalted that he will have mercy upon you for the Lord is a God of judgment or a God of deliverance. Blessed are they, all they, that wait on him. You're in your sin. Sometimes, you know, the sheep has to wander on and he gets himself in such a mess. Thorns, briars, everything else. But if the shepherd just comes, you know what? The sheep's going to jump and he's going to fall over the cliff to his death. And the Lord's wise. He knows he's got to wait till you're tired and you come to the end of yourself. He waits that he might be gracious, that he might carry the sheep again back in his arms and take the sheep back to the fold. Again, isn't the Lord gracious? That's a good shepherd. He knows how to do it. You keep waiting sincerely. And waiting doesn't mean doing nothing. It means praying. It means asking. It means seeking him with all your heart. And he will appear. He will send his spirit. He will work graciously. The Lord will not make anyone ashamed who waits for him. Amen.